This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession podcast with Chef Mary Mamalidi. The backyards that we're creating, they might meet the needs of the homeowner, but they weren't the best for the environment. Everybody wanted low maintenance, but they were becoming very sterile. So I started incorporating uh, plants for things like pollinator gardens and cleaning the air that we breathe. So I started incorporating those types of elements into my gardening. From there, I realized very quickly that the next stage of this evolution is teaching people how to grow food. The fun thing though, is now that we've got so many people like yourself who are into using these ingredients for food, we're seeing more diversity in the ingredients. In my garden center right now, we have 11 varieties of basil. That's Carson Arthur. He's a landscape designer, author, garden center owner, TV personality, columnist, and guest writer for many magazines, who loves to share his passion by teaching homeowners how to raise the value of their homes through outdoor renovations, while maintaining a focus on environmentally friendly choices. I probably should have started this interview with, what doesn't Carson do? So please join me in welcoming the greenest thumb in the biz, I wanted to kind of just talk about you and how you got started. When were you first introduced to gardening and when did you realize that this was your passion? So it's interesting. I have always been surrounded by plants. So um, my family grew up, well, I grew up on an apple farm. It was an apple orchard production. Um, My mom was a gardener. We grew a lot of our vegetables in the family garden that we would live off of. Um, all year long. And we had a root cellar and we did preserves and pickling and all that stuff. And leaving the farm to go to school, I thought, well, there's no way I'm going back to that lifestyle. Big city, here I come. This is going to be amazing. And the more time I spent in the city, the more I realized that, wow, I really had it good back at the farm. Uh, And I had an opportunity to um, take a package with a large corporation that I was working for at the time. And part of the package is re-education. And I decided that, you know what, I'm going to get back into gardening because that's what I love to do. And I was 29 at the time. Oh, that's a big move. Yeah, it was, it was scary. I walked away from a six-figure marketing job within a large corporation. So I, I kind of said, you know what, I'm going for it. And I got into this, this landscape design program. But what I didn't realize was part of the program involved co-op. So I had to work for the summer. And I had all these summer plans. I was going to Africa. I was like, no, no, I'm not working. I've worked. I've done that part. (laughs) I know how to write a resume. I just want to learn how to do landscape design. But it was a component. So I had to get a job. And I got a job behind the scenes of a gardening call and television show. And the producer said, listen, my friend is casting this other show. You should go see her. So I I showed up at this other show. And the producer said, well, this is what we want to do. We want to do these these fantasy gardens, like the Barbie garden. And, and I'm like, oh, that sounds terrible. Not realizing that this was actually an interview and she was <laughs> wanting my actual opinion. And I no. gave it to her saying, your show sounds terrible. Uh, she said, well, what would you do? And at the time I said, well, there's this great show called Designer Guys. And they're taking interiors and making them really cool, Stephen and Chris. And I why know. Don't you, uh-huh. yeah, why, why don't you do that outside? And she kind of looked at me and she said, well, do you think you could do 13 backyards differently? And I said, 13? I said, you can do hundreds differently. There's so much variation and, and things to incorporate outside. And that started the whole career path for me. That moment where she said, okay, well, let's do it your way. 
And then that was it. And that would be how you got introduced to TV then? That's how I got into TV. And from there, the ball just kept rolling. So my first book was about low-maintenance outdoor spaces. And then the more I got into designing for people, the more I realized that um, the backyards that we're creating or we were creating at the time weren't the best for the environment. They might meet the needs of the homeowner, but they weren't the best for the environment. And they were becoming very, I mean, low maintenance were the buzzwords. Everybody wanted low maintenance, but they were becoming very sterile. And we were starting to lose the plants and we were losing the gardening aspect of our outdoor spaces. So I did a departure from those types of gardens and started incorporating growing food and growing uh, plants for um, environmentally purposes, things like pollinator gardens and for the, the beneficial bees around us and for butterflies and for cleaning the air that we breathe. So I started incorporating those types of elements into my gardening. And then from there, I realized very quickly that the next stage of this evolution is teaching people how to grow food. So that's where we are today. When was that switch for you? When did you realize that this is not gardening or how gardening should be? And you wanted to do that switch and to start bringing in more of the, like you mentioned, the pollinators. And it's really interesting because it happens to do, it's very specific to the generations that we have in our area right now. So for example, baby boomers were really the gardeners. They loved Mark Cullen and the gardening gurus like Kathy Renwall and Ken Beattie. And their type of gardening was um, collection gardening in the sense that they had their perfect pink hydrangea that they could turn blue and their one or two roses that they loved. And they, they had individual plants that became a collection. And then we started seeing a shift away from that into this low maintenance kind of demographic, which were really Generation X. And Generation X said, listen, I will pay somebody else to do the work that I don't want to do. And that's looking after my outdoor spaces. So that's where in Canada, we saw, oh, in North America, really, we saw this really explosion of landscape companies. And landscape companies started to realize that if they only worked with a palette of, say, 10 to 12 plants in all of their designs, it was very easy to train somebody to install those. It was very easy to teach homeowners how to look after them a little bit, but the diversity disappeared. So we started seeing lots of evergreens in the front yard, lots of use of big rocks. Um, We stopped seeing a lot of flowering things or things that were complicated. That kind of disappeared. And then we had the millennials come up and the millennials now um, as a generation have more debt than anybody else ever at this stage in their lives. And they're trying to find homes. So their homes have to be more than just their backyard escape. They have to produce food because now they're looking at ways like, okay, um, do I get cable TV this month or do I have good healthy food for my family? So now millennials are, are really looking at their money and looking at what they can impact and growing food for them is a big part of the story. In fact, we're seeing the millennials who are now the largest population in North America saying gardening and growing food is their number one hobby. I've got a couple of games that I would love to play if you're up for it. Sure. Okay. Rapid fire. Tell us one thing most people don't know about you. Uh, I played professional sports for several years. I played uh, professional volleyball for a bit, and I got to do a lot of fun stuff with Tennis Canada as well. So I'm an athlete guy. Okay. Do you listen to music while you cook? I listen to audiobooks and podcasts. 
Love it, yeah. For me, the audiobooks always makes me feel like I have somebody there, so I'm never really alone. Yeah. So I'm always kind of in the conversation or something's happening, and that that makes me happier, and it takes me out of my own headspace. I think about too much of my own stuff all the time, so the audiobooks are a good thing for me. Would you rather go camping, hiking, boating, or dancing? Uh, well, I will take all of the first three. Unfortunately, as a six foot five big guy with no rhythm, dancing is off the table. Not, no, I always feel like I'm the, the, the maypole in the center of the dance floor and everybody's working around me. No, it's not going to happen. But I'm, I'm an outdoor guy through and through. I love all of the above. So how did you get started in the kitchen? Uh, my mom and my grandma were big influences. Um, obviously, anybody who comes from a large family knows what large family gatherings entail when it comes to the kitchen. Uh, and as I became an adult, I wanted to have those types of events as well. I wanted to celebrate life around food because I always feel like you associate good memories with good food. So that really pulled me in and started the journey. And then I got hooked on shows like Chopped. Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. Um, so there was a little bit of experimenting, but I found it came naturally. And I absolutely love to cook. Were you making the gummy bear soup? Uh, <laughs> I didn't do that. Although the, the giant gummy bear worm that they had one time, I'm like, where do I get that? I want to eat it. But no, no gummy bear soup though. Describe your cooking style. Eclectic. <laughs> I am Ooh, all I like that. that. I have hundreds of cookbooks and I go through cooking magazines and I tear out all my favorite recipes. I have um, <laughs> scrapbooks full, full of recipes that I can't wait to try. So I'm, I'm all over the map with my cooking style, but I find diversity is so much better and healthier for my family and for myself that I don't mm -hmm. mind being a little bit crazy eclectic. I can get with that. Definitely. Okay. And you mentioned you have a lot of cookbooks. What are some of your favorite? Oof. Um, I'm really into, uh, this is okay. This is going to be a little embarrassing. I'm really into the, <laughs> the backyard cookbook series from Weber's. It was the barbecue company. They that, did this no whole way, collection. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm like, I know wow, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And the flavor profiles, like the smoky, the salty, the spicy, all the things that they've been playing with all done in barbecues. I'm fascinated by it right now. And are there any techniques that maybe you're currently trying to master in the kitchen right now? Sous vide. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I got a sous vide cooker and um, everybody who's used it successfully says it's amazing. You can bring the temperature of whatever you're grilling or your meat up to a certain temperature so that you know it's cooked. And then you just throw it on the grill to give it grill marks. Uh, I mm -hmm. haven't had that success just yet. Uh, but we're getting there. I'm getting closer. <laughs> um, I also this year got my first pellet smoker. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of fun things with smoke. Uh, so smoking tomatoes for Cobb salad and smoking mm. kalumi cheese and, and doing fun things with that, which has been a real experiment for me. So you've always just loved cooking. You're a big foodie. What's the first recipe you can remember trying? Um, it was probably beef. Uh, I think my family... Uh, growing up on the farm, we had a lot of cattle farms around us, and I think it was beef. And I think I hammered, like absolutely hammered, um, some <laughs> sirloin steak to the point where they were they were flying devices that you would throw at each other, not actually consume. Hammered them, and I and I try to convince myself if I thinly slice them, they're edible. But no, they're terrible. You 
gave it a try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all have these, you know, one or two recipes or maybe some more that we always go back to and that become our signature recipe. What is your signature recipe? Oof, I go through phases. So I'm, I find that my spice selection changes depending on what phase I'm in. So last year I was deep into Moroccan and I really loved doing apricot chicken. So good. Uh, this year I've been doing a lot of Indian spices this year. Um, so I've been doing a lot of vindaloos. Okay. Yeah, cranking up the flavor profiles on butter chicken. I've been working on making my own naan. So I, I kind of, I tend to rotate through and I find that the spices change. So then my signature dishes change with those. Okay, we need to cook together. This all Yay. sounds fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Mary Mamaliti, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Carson Arthur, the garden guru, the plant whisperer, master foodie, landscape designer, and my new BFF. So what sort of plant care are we looking at for maybe a high-performance garden? We've been very fortunate this last year because we've had so much rain, but consistent watering has has been the key uh, in my area specifically, and, and I say we've had so much rain. Where I live, we've had so much rain. It's not the same across across the country, and I and I do recognize that. But consistent watering is is the key. You have to be on top of it, and that's the one thing that people get wrong consistently is that they water at the wrong time of day. They worry about how much water, so they overwater. Um, the key with watering your garden is it's best done in the morning, so that the leaves dry off throughout the day. It's best to let the garden dry out in between waterings. Don't always try and keep it wet because that's where you get a lot of fungal infections like powdery mildew. Uh, excuse me. It's really important to have plants in the garden that signify when it's time to water the garden. For example, cucumber and zucchini are perfect examples. When their leaves start to, dro to droop, then you know it's time to water everything. So being consistent, having a regime, that's going to be the key to your success. Okay. And, and do any of our plants require pruning, pinching, fertilizing, or maybe other maintenance throughout the season? Yeah, there's all kinds of those things. I mean, that's, that's going to be a given. And that's any plant, not just vegetable gardens. Every plant is going to have its specific list of, of little, little things that it needs. It's kind of like children. Some children, really high maintenance. Other ones, yeah, just let them go. They're easy. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, learning that part tends to be one of the the steepest curves for most newbie gardeners. So start out with just a few plants. And then once you figure out how to get those going, then go to a larger collection. Okay. Talking about pinching, I have to bring this up because Matt, who is our editor and the other producer of this podcast, we had this running joke from last year that I sent him a picture of my basil plant that was this beautiful lush bush of basil. And he sent me a photo of his and it was a twig. Um, so, so he's like, what are we doing differently? And I talked about pinching. And if you can just explain a little bit about that. Right. So many plants, much like basil, um, do better when, you know, you're actually using them. And the more you use them, the more growth you'll get out of them, which is great. Some people put it in and they say, okay, grow really big and then I'll use you. But it, it kind of works the opposite. The other thing that you'll find with uh, some types of basil, not all, but some, is if you pinch the top, you encourage more lateral growth, more growth at the lower areas, because then it's not trying to go straight up. It's now trying to fill itself out, flush itself out. Also remembering too that uh, many of these plants, if you're going to use them for the leaves like basil, uh, you want to remove the flowers 
when a plant actually starts to flower, it signifies the end of the plant's life cycle because it's going to go to seed and that means it's going to propagate itself for the next season. So by removing that, the plant says, oh no, I, I can't produce seeds. I got to keep going. And so it's a bit of a trick with basil. The other thing that most people get wrong is they don't give it enough sunlight. It does well in lots and lots and lots of sun. So full sun, consistent watering, and yeah, pinching, absolutely, you'll get a bigger, healthier plant. Yeah, and I'm talking like I'm a pro. It took me a couple of years because I had a <laughs> lot of fails with my basil. I overwatered it. Yeah. So just water, pinching, and just using your garden. Yeah, absolutely. The, the fun thing, though, is now that we've got so many people like yourself who are into using these ingredients for food, we're seeing more diversity in the ingredients. So when when you mentioned basil, in my garden center right now, we have 11 varieties of basil. Really? Yeah, it's become more than just, you know, the green Genovese, make a pesto basil. It's so much more diverse and I love it, especially if you're a foodie like me who likes different mm -hmm. flavor profiles, you can really play with your fresh herbs now. How about harvesting? Do you have any harvest tips for us? The one thing that when it comes to harvesting, you really have to understand your plants sort of routine. So for example, um, most of the tomatoes in our backyard are one of two varieties, determinate or indeterminate. Now, determinate means it produces all of its tomatoes all at once. So if you're thinking about like a Roma tomato, you want to make sauce, it's not going to help you to pick one tomato every couple of days until you have lots because by the time you get enough to make sauce, your first ones are already going bad. So a determinate plant produces all of its tomato all at once for harvest, which is amazing. Indeterminate are the ones that kind of do it sort of scattered throughout the season. Those are great for salads, for fresh uses versus for cooking because you never get enough to cook from. So when it comes to harvesting, understanding the life cycle and the pattern of the plant is going to be key. Uh, even something, something as simple as planting a row of carrots one week and another row of carrots two weeks later and another row of carrots two weeks after that so that you're staging the harvesting process is going to actually make the whole kind of system work better for you and for your family as to when you want to use it. Are there any planting that we can do in our garden from seed as of July and August? Yeah, July is still a great time for planting carrots. As we get into the end of August, you could start beets, you could start some more radishes. These are again, cold weather plants that will do fine going into the cooler season. I actually will do another row of peas. Um, snow peas and sugar snap peas are great in cooler weather. So again, end of August going into September, because what you have to look at on your seed package is days to maturity. And then often they will show you this seed takes 35 days from the moment you plant it to the moment you can harvest it. And if you can, if you can do that and time it appropriately, then you know exactly what you're going to get out of the garden by planting at what time before frost is going to hit. So you can you can play with those numbers and, and try to be creative and make your garden last longer. And can you grow carrots in a container garden? As long as the soil is at least 18 inches deep, you can grow any variety of carrot you want in a container garden. If your soil is shallower than 18 inches, look for some of the carrots like Romeo or Paris Market carrot. They are a shorter, stubbier carrot. They often look like a beet, but they are fantastic flavor and they will grow in a much shallower space. Now we're going to look ahead towards the end of the growing season. Mm -hmm. What's involved in putting uh, our garden to bed for the season? 
Uh, there's a few different things that people will do, and I'm a huge fan of some of them, not so much all of them. Um, at the end of the season is when I like to add um, fiber to my soil. And it sounds odd, but soil does well with manure and with compost because you work it into the soil. It adds moisture retention for your plants for next year. So I tend to do a treatment of that at, at the end of the season. The other thing I will do is certain... I, I do all of my gardening in raised beds. I have 35 raised beds. Um, I, will, I will sterilize some of them, which means I will put a tarp over them so that the sun at the end of the season cooks everything in the soil. And I sterilize it from certain plants. Tomatoes, uh, cherry tomatoes are a classic example. If you don't get to all those little cherry tomatoes that fall off the plant that are all over your garden, those seeds can overwinter and regrow next year. So I will often sterilize my bed by cooking it with a tarp over it. And then I will add the, the manure, the compost right at the end, just before frost to work it in so that I'm putting back in all the nutrients, getting it ready for next year. I'm hearing a lot of this overwintering. So what is over, overwintering? Several plants that we will grow can actually survive our winter, can survive our climate. Um, some need a little bit of the help, but things like sage. Uh, even some of the parsley, chives, these will all overwinter in our garden. And you can actually access them using um, special types of cold frame storages. So you'll often see in the classic uh, gardens where they've built this little frame with old windows so that the sun will heat up the space inside so they can access kale and some of these vegetables as they need them going through the winter season. So it's a great way to do it. Uh, as far as overwintering, predominantly for most of your vegetables, most of them are not going to last. So again, being smart, composting them, um, treating them properly at the end of their life cycle is a great way to actually ensure that they're providing something for the next generation. And can any of these plants be brought indoors to save for next season? You can. Unfortunately, they tend to look really ugly. <laughs> they look ugly at, right around Christmas when family's coming over. You've got this mangy looking tomato plant with one or two tomatoes, and you're like, "Oh no, it's still good, it's still good." And everybody's laughing I would at put you, some like, "No, tinsel on no it." Way. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there are certain things that I will put out and then bring in. For example, I have a giant rosemary in an old terracotta pot that I bring in every year, um, and I put it kind of in the corner off by itself, but it it does just fine. Uh, and then it goes back out in the season. I do that with citrus trees as well. I have lemons and limes in pots that I will bring in. Uh, same thing though, they shed all their leaves and they look like twigs, right? You know, when company's coming by, but they will <laughs> bounce back eventually. I have a lot of my herbs. I'm, I'm in the city. I've got a concrete backyard and I do all my gardening and container gardens, raised flower beds. And I have all my herbs in like pots, but they don't last though. Uh, yeah. Outside, they don't know it's for sure. And you can bring some in. You can certainly bring in chives. Um, you can bring in basil, but it doesn't really last very long indoors, unfortunately. Uh, it, and it has more to do not so much with um, you bringing it in, but the light levels. Our light levels in North America going into January, February just aren't strong enough to support the plants with windows. We have to artificially supplement the amount of light that they're getting because they just don't get enough. And they, they basically die off from lack of light. Okay, then that brings me to the other question. What's your take or what's your opinion on those click and grow gardens? I love it as long as you're using it realistically. Um, don't plant massive tomatoes in these things. 
I've seen people have tomatoes growing all over the place. They're like, but that's what we like to eat. Uh, these types of gardens do best with smaller plants and they're great with herbs. Herbs are going to be your, your win with these types of gardens because they're easier to grow. Herbs can handle a little bit less light predominantly, but then there's something that you're going to consistently be using every meal that you cook. So you're going to continually harvest from your click and grow gardens, which makes it more practical. If you're using it, it's going to work better for you. If you plant it and say, oh, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, you never actually take advantage of it, then what was the point in the first place? Is there anything that we can do to give our gardens a, a little bit of a jump start next year? So for me, who's container gardening? Yeah, if you're, if you're using smaller pots, though, you should really consider changing up that soil every single season. Um, any fungal infections like powdery mildew or anthracnose overwinters in the soil in those pots. And you can pass it from one plant to another to another. Uh, the other thing is, for example, tomatoes. Tomatoes are one of the hungriest plants out there. If you plant a tomato plant in the same plant that you put a tomato plant in the year before, the tomato sucks all the nutrients out. So the next tomato struggles because it doesn't have enough nutrients. And you can try and replace it, but it's kind of it's a bit of a hit and miss because you don't know what the first tomato took out. So how do you know what the second tomato is going to be deficient of? And an example of when we don't get it right is called blossom end rot, where you get black on the bum of the tomato. And that's a deficiency of calcium. Well, how, how would you ever know how much calcium is in your soil? So that, that becomes a bit tricky. So it's best to start fresh each spring if you're going to use container gardening. And if there's a larger, deeper flower beds, mm -hmm. and we can't switch out the soil because there's just so much soil in them. Absolutely, yeah. What do we do for those? And again, I'm going to keep coming back to compost the manure in the fall. That's the best thing. You can even chop up your leaves, the leaves from an average tree that's about 15 feet tall. If you chop those up and really pulverize them with the mower and put that pump, that leaf matter into the vegetable gardens, it works out to about $50 worth of free fertilizer per year for you. And it's, it's nitrogen, which is when your leaves break down, they release a ton of nitrogen into the soil. And nitrogen is what leafy greens, lettuces and kales and spinach, that's what they love. So it's absolutely a great benefit. And it's really, it's free. So why wouldn't you? And the leaves are fantastic because there's no seeds in the leaves. So they will naturally break down and feed your plants. But you want to do it in the fall, not in the spring, because then they'll have a chance to break down before you get ready to garden. Last one, we're going to play fill in the blanks. I'm always late to blank. Nothing, ever. Blank is how I temporarily escape. Cooking, yep, cooking is how I escape. If I could go anywhere right now, I would go to blank. I actually am gonna say, I'm gonna go up to the cottage to like an Algonquin cottage. I'm gonna disappear up north for a little while. Oh, nice. I want to try blank. I want to try, oh my gosh, there's so many things. My bucket list is so huge. Um, I really want to try growing um, hellebores, which is kind of like this winter daisy. It's very popular in England. Um, and I, I really want to be successful because I love them, but I haven't had that chance. So I'm. that's what I'm going to say. I want to try growing some new plants that I haven't really played with before. Oh, I like that one. Okay, I deserve a gold medal in blank. Patience. And my whole family knows exactly what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that, but patience. <laughs> and I ask all my guests, 
to share a little kitchen confession with us. I mean, I seem to have been doing it throughout the entire <laughs> episode, entire segment here, but what is your kitchen confession? Uh, this one's going to be a little embarrassing. Um, we bought a new house about seven years ago. And with the house came this fantastic new oven. And it's a convection oven. It's the first time that I've had convection. And I couldn't figure out why I was burning all of my meals. Everything was overcooking <laughs> so much faster. And I couldn't figure out why. And, I, and then one day I read a recipe that said, if you have a convection oven, it's going to take this long. And the light bulb went off and went, oh, yeah, I've been using the set time for a regular bake oven and not a convection oven. And that's why I was burning everything. So shame on Carson, oh but that's my kitchen confession. <laughs> You're not alone. I think everyone that starts with their very first convection oven it does the same thing. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I had lasagna <laughs> that was so hammered. Uh, and I set the timer and walked away and came back. And I'm like, why is this a brick? It was horrible. Yeah, that's great. Proud of that. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> my pleasure. Um, if listeners want to reach out for more from you, uh, where can they find you? I'm all across social media. It's a really creative name. It's called Carson <laughs> Garden and Market. Uh, you can always find me there. Uh, City Line, we're doing a lot more where viewers can reach into City Line and talk to the experts. Um, so that's a way to get a hold of me. I'm, I'm around. I'm, I'm accessible. I'm not hidden. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Um, thank you for playing along with me because I do, you know, I do love my games. This was so much fun for me too. I smiled the entire time. My cheekbones hurt right now, which is a good sign. It's that time we've reached the end of another show. Did we get your stomach growling? Head over to kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. Plus, you can check out ami.ca forward slash kitchenconfession for all the latest on the podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and review so we can keep bringing you more episodes you'll love. Our producer and editor is Matt Agnew, and I'm your host, Mary Mammolini. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.